Hi there. Welcome to New Frontiers Church weekly message series. Thanks for joining us today. We've reached the final chapter of our Justice and Mercy series, throughout which we've been considering our response to the prophet Micah's question. O oh, mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? Today, I want to close out our series by examining the gospel foundation for justice and mercy. You may remember when Ian opened our current series, he told us that the sixth chapter of Micah takes the form of a lawsuit. In fact, the primary role of Old Testament prophets was to act as God's prosecuting attorneys, calling his people Israel to account and reminding them of the consequences of failing to meet the terms of his covenant with them. In Micah's lawsuit, the question was, what do the people have to do to meet the terms of the covenant? Micah presents the case. God lodges the charge against the people. They have broken the covenant by mistreating each other and by exploiting the poor and the weak. God reminds them that he has kept his side of the covenant. He's done everything he bound himself to do for them. And he did it freely as an act of unmerited grace. He saved and he rescued them. But their response was to mistreat and exploit the weak. God gives them another chance. A chance to acknowledge that they've messed up and to turn back to him. If you look at the text, you'll see that their response drips with sarcasm and contempt. In seeking to justify themselves, they not only betray the fact that they don't understand the seriousness of the case against them, but they don't care either. They offer only empty ritual, not genuine repentance. God's response is clear and emphatic. He reminds them of their place. Oh, mortal! What is good? Who are you to challenge God? God is the creator of human life. And as the creator, he alone can determine how we should relate to him and to each other, his image bearers. He alone gets to define what is good. There is no other good outside of God. No virtue, ideology, civil or religious scheme that qualifies unless it accords with God's desire for human life. In his sovereignty and dispensation of common grace, God has allowed, and in fact he graciously has enabled, human governments and systems to do social and moral good. But outside of him, they can never meet the requirements of his covenant, nor bring about his kingdom. No human-derived justice system, no matter how well-meaning the intentions of its authors might be, can ever be truly effective. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn a lot from them, though, especially when we take time to engage with those who faced injustice. However, all human-derived systems of justice are ultimately flawed, since they're underpinned by fallible human reason and emotion, rather than by the Creator. Laws regarding moral behaviour expose and act as constraints on injustice, but they can never get to the root of the issue, which is changing the hearts of men and women. Only God can do that. Issues of injustice, such as poverty, 
inequality, racism and the treatment of the unborn are all ultimately gospel issues and they can never be fully solved through human ideologies. Theologian Herman Bavinck explained that human rights to justice are grounded in God's power as creator and in his grace as redeemer. By virtue of creation, rights are structured into the very existence of nature and all existing things. However, because of our sin, all our rights have been forfeited. Yet out of sheer grace, God grants his creatures an array of rights and binds himself by an oath to maintain those rights. So while God owes no one anything, he creates an order of justice and rights that he himself honors. These rights are based both on creation, the way he made us, and grace, because he does this out of love and mercy, not out of obligation. Commenting on Bavinck's explanation of the human rights to justice, Tim Keller concludes that Bavinck is helping us to understand just how radically different biblical justice is from all other secular theories. Justice and rights are not ultimately created by social contract, nor are they based on moral laws discerned by human reason alone, as the Enlightenment would say, nor are they rooted in historical and material conditions, as Marxism says. Rather, they are rooted in the character of God as creator and redeemer. True justice is rooted in the character of God as creator and redeemer. And Micah 6.8 describes in simple terms three things that he expects in response from his people. First, to do mispat, which the NIV translates to act justly. This includes behaving justly as individuals, but the concept here is actually much bigger than just personal justice. It refers to the whole of society. It points to societal justice, where every area of community life reflects God's character. Secondly, hesed, which is translated in the NIV to love mercy. The mercy described here is far beyond just doing acts of charity. To the Israelites, hesed represented corporately expressed covenant love. Old Testament theologian Elizabeth Actemeyer described it as being bound together in solidarity with both God and human beings so that community is established between poor and rich, weak and strong, female and male, slave and free, alien and Israelite, and all care for one another in mutual respect and protection and sharing. Hesed binds people together as one in the bundle of life, so God is not worshipped and obeyed apart from concern for one's fellow human being. And thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. The Hebrew here means to live with God in constant communion. This is setting justice and mercy into the context of a relationship with God. It includes our contemporary understanding of humility as being modest and self-effacing, but it also involves the idea of paying attention to God, turning our eyes and our lives towards him. This is the standard God has set. And in the courtroom scene, Micah reveals that God's people have been found to be dreadfully lacking. Rather than turning back to God, they've turned to ritual, moralism and even sarcasm to justify themselves. 
But what an impossibly high ethic this standard represents. No wonder the Israelites couldn't meet it. The Old Covenant requirements expose the impossibility of meeting God's standards in our fallen state, of reaching the standard required to live life as God intended for us. So our reaction, if we try and do so, is often going to be the same as the Israelites were. We reject God and we do our own thing, or we turn to moralism or ritual to somehow try to satisfy or impress God with our acts of self-righteousness. But God didn't leave mankind in this place. Rather, he took it upon himself to fulfill the requirements on our behalf. The old covenant points to what was to come in the new covenant. At the centre of our understanding of what it means to do mispat and hesed is the gospel. The work of Jesus, the perfect man, the Messiah, our resurrected Lord and Saviour. The one who meets all the requirements of the covenant on our behalf. Centuries before Jesus, when the prophets looked ahead to the time of the future Messiah, they foretold a new covenant that would create a new vertical relationship with God and new horizontal relationships between people. Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He declared that the words of Isaiah 61, prophesying the coming messianic kingdom age, would be fulfilled in himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus taught that the only way to enter his kingdom was through repentance and faith. We enter the kingdom of God by God's grace. We're born again from above. But we aren't only in a new relationship with God. We are born again into a new community of Christ's followers. And our response to God's grace is to begin to live by the radical kingdom ethic that Jesus taught. Not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he wasn't only saying that God gladly forgives sinners who repent, but he was creating a new visible community of Jesus' followers whose life together is a picture. It's a taste of what the kingdom looks like. This kingdom has good news for the poor, liberty for the captives and freedom for the oppressed, all expressed through a community marked by mispat and hesed, justice and covenant love. The cross ended the worst racial hostility in the ancient world. Jew and Gentile both met at the foot of the cross where they were accepted by God through grace alone and that new vertical relationship produced an equally radical new horizontal relationship of peace between former enemies. Paul said he has made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and has broken down the dividing wall so he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. People looked at the early church and they saw the rich sharing with the poor, Jews embracing Gentiles, masters accepting slaves, men welcoming women as dignified, gifted members of Christ's body. 
So radically different was this new redeemed social order that Paul was able to boast, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we get to demonstrate the justice and mercy Micah prophesied as we walk humbly in communion with God. The early church was a new inclusive community breaking down and transcending the sinful human barriers of ethnicity, race, class and gender. Their public actions pointed people to the Lord they worshipped. They engaged in sweeping economic sharing. They ate together inviting rich and poor to join them. They counted themselves as brothers and sisters, regardless of background. Everyone was recognized for their special gifting from the Holy Spirit, and each one was understood to be an essential part of the church body, especially the weaker members. Doing justice and loving mercy is not about following a set of rules and guidelines. First and foremost, it is about our natural response, or should I really say our supernatural response, to encountering the gospel of the kingdom. It's rooted in Jesus because it's rooted in the very character of God and his covenant with us. I never cease to be humbled by the acts of justice and mercy that I see in our church family. The stories we've heard in our messages over the past few weeks have been so encouraging. I know we can be tempted to think that what we're doing is like really, really small, but it's not. This is the kingdom of God at work. This is Mispat and Hesed. This is what Micah is speaking about. I'd like to close today by briefly discussing four ways we can do Mispat and express Hesed as a church community right here on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Each of these ways represents a facet of biblical justice proposed by Tim Keller in the paper that I quoted earlier. The first way Keller suggests is radical generosity. Secular individualism says your money belongs to you. Socialism says your money belongs to the state. The Bible says it all belongs to God, who then entrusts it to you to steward it wisely. And a big part of that is overflowing in generosity, begging for the privilege of supporting others, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our wealth belongs to us, but yet it also doesn't. Out of our love for our neighbour, we are called to radical generosity, disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others. There are so many examples I could mention of such radical generosity addressing injustices through our church. But let me remind you of just one. A few weeks ago, we made the church aware of an issue of injustice in a far off country. In order to protect the people involved, we couldn't say much about what was happening other than some members of our church there were working directly with a group of mostly Muslim women trapped in indentured servitude and abuse. They needed funds to help them escape. The response was staggering. In just a few days, people gave more than $26,000. As of earlier this week, We've been a part of helping to bring 99 women out of bondage through a safe house and back to their families. 
Here's a short video from some of the ladies. They're holding their plane reservations, saying a heartfelt thank you to people they do not know and likely will never meet, yet who gave radically and generously to see them freed from injustice. Thank you. The second facet of biblical justice suggested by Keller is universal equality. Writing on the impact of Christianity on Western culture, historian Tom Holland commented that ancient cultures, apart from Judeo-Christian ones, completely lacked any sense that the poor or weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Jesus shocked the social sensibilities of his day by receiving and treating all classes of people with equal love and respect. He understood they were all God's image bearers. He reached out to lepers, Samaritans and hated tax collectors. He exhorted his disciples to not just be generous with the poor, but to welcome them into their homes and families. His love and mercy compels us to be the same, to be careful to make sure our gatherings and our lives are free from partiality. Whether rich, poor, black, white, young, old, we want to treat all of God's image bearers with love and respect. We want to listen to and understand those from different cultures, adapting and changing our practices so we truly honour and serve them. I love the diverse and multicultural generational mix of people that God has gathered together in our church family. And I long for it to continue to expand and grow as we find ways to reach out to others in the community that are different from us. We also need to continue the work of rooting out the partiality that we can so often find deep in our hearts. We do this when we intentionally appreciate those that are different from us, listening to their stories, engaging with them and treating them as cherished image bearers of God, not as projects or programs. The third facet of biblical justice Keller suggests is life changing advocacy. While we are to treat all equally and not show partiality, we're also to show special concern for the poor, the weak and the powerless. Proverbs 31.9 challenges us to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 14.20 says that the poor are disliked even by their neighbours, but the rich have many friends. Those of us with friends, with access to resources and power, are compelled to advocate for the oppressed. This call to advocacy assumes that the powerless have equal rights to the rest of us. It is therefore not just an issue of mercy, but also of mispat, of justice for those unable to defend themselves. I don't know about you, but I was so touched by Jeff and Sheena Cole and Tyler and Melissa Graham Mason's testimonies. These families have restructured their lives to advocate for kids in need of fostering and adoption. And they are now reaching out to help others to do the same. What a wonderful demonstration of life-changing advocacy 
on behalf of the powerless. Sue Zeely's story about the work of the volunteers at Options, an agency originally set up by the church here, was another great example of advocacy on behalf of the defenseless. She spoke about people who have invested their lives to bring life-changing advocacy for the unborn and their mothers, while graciously loving, caring for, and gently restoring women who've had abortions. And fourthly, Keller suggests that biblical justice calls for what he terms asymmetrical responsibility. This is about the responsibility those of us with power and influence, often called privilege, have to lift up and honour those that don't. Luke tells us that one Sabbath, Jesus was invited to eat at a banquet at the home of a prominent Pharisee. As the guests arrived, Jesus noticed how they chose their places at the table, sitting as close as possible to the seat of power at the top of the table. The typical purpose of such banquets in the hierarchical world of the first century was to cultivate relationships with people who could open doors for you and who in turn would expect favours from you as well, like access to your network of contacts. Doesn't that sound a lot like some parts of our own world? It's not what you know, but who you know. In this social system, people of means would never invite a marginalised person to a meal because their very presence would undermine the social status of the host. The consequence of this was systemic disadvantage to those at the lower end of the social order. Jesus called this out, refusing to even let his followers participate in such a system. He responded to those that had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. For wealthy followers of Jesus, the act of inviting the poor and marginalized into their homes, elevating them and treating them with honor, would have dramatically negated the very structures that undermined their ability to escape oppression and poverty. We have a remarkably similar opportunity in our world. Keller argues that those of us blessed with status and position in our culture have an asymmetrical responsibility to support and advocate for those marginalized by differences in wealth, race and gender. When we take responsibility to leverage our privileged positions to proactively support and elevate those our society has marginalized, we help them break through the deeply entrenched systems that are hostile towards them. But this so often demands really uncomfortable action on our part. It requires that we use our resources and access to help the marginalized get honored seats at the banquet table. Let me give you an example. On many occasions, Brian and Maud Aldrich, who lead our benevolence team, have used their influence and societal position, Maud is a retired social worker, to reach out to the housing department, to welfare, to charitable foundations, and to the police, to advocate for people in recovery with felonies, that society is deemed to be unworthy of help. 
they put their reputation on the line using their influence to get the person a hearing or support that they would never have gotten to by themselves. They use their reputation to get these people a seat at the table. But it's not just advocacy and it's not just Brian and Maud. It also means we need to refuse to participate in discrimination or abuse of others, remembering that whomever they are, they are first and foremost image bearers of God. And it means speaking up and taking action when we see others abusing, demeaning or discriminating against someone, whether at school, work, in the neighborhood, or even in our church gatherings. This is the asymmetrical responsibility those of us with privilege have to support the marginalized. You know, we really are a privileged people. We've been born again from above into a new community of Christ followers with a mandate to demonstrate the good news of his kingdom to the world our response to his grace and mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit is to live out and express the facets of that kingdom. Whether by our radical generosity, by treating everyone equitably, living our lives free from partiality, our advocacy for the poor, the weak and the powerless, or the way we undermine unjust worldly systems when we take responsibility to elevate and honour the marginalized. This is what it means to do mispat and express God's hesed. This is biblical justice and mercy.